Hi, it's Chris Watkin here, and I'm joined by Mark Ross, who is a estate agent boss of Redbricks, very well-known estate agents in South Yorkshire. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining me today. Not a problem at all. Nice to be here. Mark, I'd like to talk to you about your journey as an estate agent over the years, how you became an estate agent and how you set up your own estate agency, the goods, the bads, uh, the lessons learned, uh, so we can teach the boys and girls out there in estate agency land um, who probably want to do the same themselves. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, delighted to. Good stuff. So, so Mark, just, just for the benefit of everyone watching, um, Mark has a estate agency chain in South Yorkshire. How many branches? Uh, so we, we sit in eight buildings, but I think technically we'd be calling it four branches across South Yorkshire and North East Derbyshire. I can't miss out Chesterfield. Okay, and you started, that's um, obviously in Derbyshire, and you started in 2013. But what we'll do is we'll go step back and actually go and talk about uh, your life when you left school. <laughs> So you went and did a degree in what? PR and marketing. Okay. Um, so my dad had a PR agency uh, back in the day, uh, one of the first, I think, in Sheffield. Uh, I really liked the idea of uh, going into an understanding about that environment. Um, I was quite passionate about doing it in a business school, so I had uh, options to do it at University of Central Lancashire or at Bournemouth. They were both in the journalist school. Uh, so I could have followed your route, Chris. Um, uh, but wanted to do it in the business school, so ended up at Leeds Met, um, which had a few name changes since then. I think it's now called Beckett University or something. But back when I was there, it was Leeds Metropolitan University. And what year was what what year was that then? So went to university in 1999. Okay. So um, how did that? Was it a three-year course, four-year course? It was a three-year course. Um, but I think the big benefit for me on that particular course was the sandwich year. So I worked at Volkswagen for the year down at Milton Keynes, which I think uh, really helped shape my work ethic and also uh, that sort of can-do attitude that they, they had. I had a great, was part of a great team, uh, great leadership, uh, and really enjoyed learning and understanding different aspects of, of PR, potentially, mainly PR, but a little bit of marketing as well. Okay, so you left university what, 2003, 2004? Yeah, yeah, 2003. Why didn't you go and join your father's firm? Um, uh, I think, to put it bluntly, I think motor journalists put me off. Um, I don't think I wanted to go into the world of uh, PR at that stage, purely and simply because... But it's the reason you went into PR, was because of your father. Yeah, so I think Dad ran a a fantastic uh, agency, and it was really exciting, and I think had some amazing clients. Um, and it was it was an industry that was fast paced. It was moving quickly. It was still relatively embryonic at that stage in the UK, and uh, has has matured and grown up a little bit now. Not mentioning the firms, what kind of businesses were were being run by your father's firm at the time? Lots of different ones. It was very diverse, actually, from football clubs to health uh, to legal uh, and financial. So okay. a broad range. So this is PR, not not necessarily marketing, but PR. And very much so, yeah. And I think it was it was still the as I said the early stages of PR, okay. which was very journalist read. It was about okay. column inches. Okay. I mean, what is the difference? What is, what would you say the difference is between PR and marketing then? Um, I, I think PR predominantly. I'd sort of say there's a. Um, a much more brand relationship. It's all about developing the brand, giving people an understanding uh, of the identity of the business, um, which is probably about 60% of it. The other 40% of it is is gaining traction for the stories, for the things that you are actually okay. doing. And 
for me, I was always taught that it was almost the, the cheaper way of getting advertising. You didn't have to spay, spend on okay. it. It was the third party endorsements that you were looking for. We'll hang on to that thought and come back okay. to it later. Okay, so when did the bright lights of a state agent, did, was it, did you think to yourself, well, I don't want to be a PR <laughs> person. It's um, almost, let's be honest, going to work for your dad straight out of university. You need to get a bit of uh, roughage under your feet. Um, did you go straight into a state agency or? Pretty much, yeah. I worked um, when I was at university, I worked at a clothing shop uh, and came back and I worked for quite an entrepreneurial gentleman that um, was thinking about uh, expanding from his designer clothes shop at the time. When that quite quickly didn't come for, to fruition, um, I joined Brundell's, um, which were... So you kind of fell into a state agency like the rest of us? Pretty much, yeah. There was, there was no clear plan that I would like to be an estate agent, no. You were straight out of university, knew a bit about marketing. You went straight in what to Blundell's in Sheffield in 03, 04? Yeah, uh, I think it was about 04. Uh, joined um, a phenomenally successful business that had okay. uh, grown up over a number of decades. Uh, I knew the principal there, Mike Blundell, really, really well. I went to school with his daughter um, and still uh, great friends okay. with them today. I mean, the market in 03, 04 was, was reasonably, you know, cracking on quite nicely, just about to take off um, in the, you know, in the, the later in the year, later in the couple of years. Um, did you go in as a neg or a valuer or? Came in, they were starting a new role, I think very much based on sort of the Foxton's idea of having minis and lots of branding around. So I came in as a, a viewing representative at the time. Um, so very much uh, sort of charged with getting uh, additional revenue leads from the viewing experience. How did you feel about being a university qualified person, which basically being, with the utmost respect, someone with a bunch of keys? Um, I think I think it's like anything. You you make the choice in life to to want to succeed, and I think if you go into a new industry, you have to accept that there are a lot of new things to learn. I think if I'd have gone into a PR uh, institution or if I'd have gone into a marketing business, I would have felt that I wanted to take perhaps a graduate training role or something okay. like that. But seeing the people around me that Blundells had nurtured and employed and, and sort of given careers to. I think my aspiration was to follow in their footsteps as opposed to anything else. Just going straight, coming back to 2021, we'll come back to, to, to the timeline in a second. Have you seen a lot of degree people coming in expecting to almost run the show? Um, I think a few years ago, yes, but I think more recently, no. I think more people have got an understanding that actually if they do want to, um, they do want to succeed, they've got to learn. And I think... What's been great about what we've done recently is we've, we've been able to get some really great qualified people into the business that have been prepared to start at the bottom mm. um, and work their way up. I think we now are at a size where we can provide those opportunities much quicker, which is great. I think when you're a smaller agency, certainly single branch or maybe two branches, there are less opportunities. Um, but for us now, we're able to offer them. Okay, let's go back to the timeline. Um, so we're 04, 05. When did you manage to actually become a negotiator and then a valuer? Um, I, I pretty much missed the negotiator part out, actually. I went straight to the valuer quite quickly. Um, and I think it was about uh, somewhere between nine and 12 months of, of doing the viewing role. Uh, Blundells were expanding, the market was fantastic, and they created uh, a valuing opportunity, and they ended up giving three jobs, which has always stuck with me, and it's something that I've always tried to replicate. If you need one, hire two, because if the market's good and they're good, then actually there'll be a need for both of them. If one person doesn't quite work out, then you've already got the ready-made replacement. So 
it was it was a really interesting life lesson very early on that has sort of stuck with me uh, and went into lettings valuing actually at the very first instance in Chesterfield that was my first proper valuing job because um, the market wasn't particularly strong at that point was it oh five um, yeah I think we it was, had it was it was still relatively strong um, for about 18 months and, and yeah. then it really fell off a cliff obviously in in 07 08 yes. but um, I just had about just just a small taste of a good market did you did you kind of like I mean obviously you hadn't been in a state on the sales side did you like the letting side um, I didn't know anything different into in, in real terms so um, it was in a very challenging market. Chesterfield's not known for uh, fast turnover of stock. The actual stock that we were letting at the time probably wasn't of a standard that would be that aspirational now. Um, and so it was, it was a little bit of a hard slog, but very quickly I moved into sales. So I was going to ask, did you get involved with the day-to-day -day management of the business properties? No. No, no, no. It was, it, was, it was genuinely quite quick. I think it was within three to six months that I'd moved okay. into sales. And this was what, 15, 16 now? Uh, five, six, no. Sorry, five, uh, five and six, sorry. Yeah. Mi mix my decades up. Yes. Why did you go into sales? I think the, the, the opportunity was significantly greater. The market, market was flying. market was flying. There was opportunities back in Sheffield as well for myself, which I'm originally from Sheffield, not from Chesterfield. Uh, Blundell's like red brick covered the whole of the sort of South Yorkshire and, uh, and Northeast Derbyshire regions. And the opportunity came up to actually move over to Leadless, which I don't know whether you mm. remember from your Sheffield days in, in S12, um, and Crystal Peaks, which was um, sort of the southeast mm. of the city. Um, slightly lower value stock than some areas of Sheffield, but um, a really great market to cut your teeth into and, and to get yeah, involved. Yeah, they don't take any prison, you know, they call a spade a shovel there, don't they? They, they certainly do, yeah, and you had to be on it, and uh, no prisoners are, no prisoners are. Do you think by going into a, how should we say, a middle to lower Area, class area. I'm not saying they're low class, but they are middle to lower compared to other areas like your doors and your totties. Do you think you learned a lot? Yeah, I think you hone your processes at that point, don't you? You really understand your product. You, I think, like any estate agent, you can make a big difference to people's lives. But I think in, in that environment, okay. you really can make a big difference. When did you get your first branch? Um, well, the way that Blundell's did it, we had managers that ran the offices and then the consultants or the valuers at that point actually just did very much a sales job. So they didn't actually run anything. It was very much okay. just around uh, listing. So I think they were probably a little bit ahead of their time in terms of very much specific, so. specifying roles, um, which I thought was fantastic. Um, so um, Gleedless was, was pretty much my branch. But generally speaking, because of Blundell's side, you always tended to be two valuers per branch and it was often postcode split so you didn't feel one was more important than the other it was just that was your patch and that's how it ran so I don't think I ever really ran an apartment or a part of the business until I actually left Blundell's. So and you left them in 2013 is that right? 2012 technically because we started just in 2013 but yeah left in 2012. I mean how, how did Blundell's cope in the crash of eight? Yeah, so uh, at the time, albeit Mike was very much the figurehead, there was a gentleman by the name of Steve Hinshelwood um, who was very much responsible for running Blundell's at the time. And he really cottoned on to this idea, especially around home information packs of upfront charging uh, and really making sure we'd got very good qualified listings uh, and listings that were ready to sell. And we were able to generate an awful lot of upfront revenue on that basis. So again, I think I was 
very fortunate to be around a lot of innovative people that ran uh, incredibly good branches and the business as a whole. There was people like Ian Appleyard that uh, have gone on to leave Blundell since and runs very successful agency in Sheffield now. There were, there were some really good salespeople around. What was the one thing that, that, Blundell, that the boss man Blundell taught you? Um, Mike, I mean, Mike's an inspiration to so many people. He'd got very thick skin. He could just keep going and he never took no for an answer and always believed that if you worked hard enough and if you went for something, you could do it. And I think that, that belief and that understanding that if you keep going at something, you will find a way to succeed. Why did, what was, what was motivating you? What, what, what did you love about a state agency at the time? And we're talking, you know, nine, 10, 11, somewhere, you know, that, that time frame. Um, I think it's very much, I think I've always had a desire to be successful. And I don't know whether it was the property industry as such at that point. I don't know whether I was mature enough to what, understand. What do you class as successful? I think it's being, success for me, I think, is being able to help people, being able to fulfill what I want to do at that particular time, the aspirations that I've got. I don't have one big giant goal that I'm aspiring to do and to say that box is ticked. But I think success is very much allowing you to do the things that you want to do. So whether that is the car that you drive, the holiday that you're on, the house that you live in, I think it's different things for different people. Sometimes it's it's about having that family environment. It can be lots of different things. Had you married by this time? Uh, I married in 2009. So yes, I was I was married when I started Red Brick. What was the, when did, when was, when was the point where you thought to yourself, I have to break free of Blundells? And I know you had no issue against Blundells, but I want you to think of the time, the first time it, the spark saying, I, I need to break free. Yeah, really, really easy to answer that one. Um, Blundells uh, had been an incredibly successful independent agency. Uh, and um, we had a number of uh, partners that were expressing an interest in retiring. And so they entered into conversations with Countrywide, who they eventually sold to. And I think it was at that point that I realised I didn't want to work for a big corporate firm. When did when did Bundells get bought out? I can't remember. Um, I think the exact time is 2011, although don't quote me on that. I think it was around okay. that time. I know it took a while for it to actually go through. Were you disappointed that you and probably others in the firm weren't able to buy it? Um, I think there was a real... Initially, I suppose, yes, there is that disappointment. Very quickly, that comes with the realism of the value in which that the company had and the understanding that that just wouldn't have been possible for uh, really a management buyout. There aren't the schemes out there today that there, that there, the, sorry, there weren't the schemes that there are today that there, there were back then. So I think really the directors, the partners, their only option was to sell. Um, and so it wasn't a case of, there was no frustration or anger. I suppose frustration, yes, but not anger because there was an understanding that that was their only opportunity. So did it come as a surprise when they did sell out? Um, I suppose I got an inkling that that's what was happening and, and over a six month period, it, it became quite obvious that that's what was happening uh, as much as they tried to deny it. And, and I know that they had to, but when you see a business that had been so focused on growth to change to very much watching the pennies, looking after the cost, you, you got a sense that there was something fundamental changing. Um, I actually asked Steve at the time if we were selling, he point blank and said to me in my face, absolutely not, Mark. And I understand why he had to do that, because he said, uh, obviously, there was confidentiality agreements and he couldn't risk it getting out. But um, 
I have no issue with them selling to Countrywide. It was absolutely the best thing for the partners of the business that had developed it. When did you realise that you had to then, because you could have just been a, 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 you know, you could have been a senior, what do they call now, area directors or whatever. Yeah, um, I think very much it, it was about, um, I think at that stage, I'd grown up a little bit, understood much more about How the old industry. were you at this point? Is that so I, I, I was 30, 31 at this okay. stage. Um, right. And I think I'd, I'd really understood that actually that successful element was also about helping people. And that, that was one of my metrics of success. Okay. And being told by area directors that you have to get clients to accept offers against their best interest, which was something that was relatively regular at the time, which wasn't sort this of... Is, this is post, post buyout. Yeah, so it, it was a very different, it was a very different remit from our side. It was very revenue driven. Uh, there was a real fear of making sure that Blundell's succeeded after the, after the, do after you, the fact. Do you think they could have, and again, nothing against Countrywide, but do you think when, when a, a corporate buys out a large independent that they, the thing they bought is the thing they get rid of? I think that's very difficult with a lot of organisations. It doesn't matter whether it's a state mm. agency or, or across the board. Mm. And I think retaining culture is really difficult. And I, I understand when you're as big as Countrywide was at that time, you have to have some level or they want some level mm. of control. Um, whether that's the right it. thing, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, Countrywide aren't buying at the moment, but there's a couple out there that are buying. And the stories I hear are identical. Okay. Yeah. Um, so obviously I'm not aware of those same stories, but I think that often an independent agency has often been built around the principle. And so therefore you remove the principle, you remove the culture. I think one of the things that that's, I've tried to move away from that model and empower the people within Redbrick to, to sort of, to stop that from happening. Are you almost that even if they should say, God forbid, you got run over on, on, a, on, a, on the Sheffield tram, God forbid, that there's plenty, touch wood, there's plenty of mini-me's. You've, you've instilled that in your firm that the ethos would carry on. I think so, yeah. And, I, and it's certainly something that I want to, to develop even further, but it's about creating a culture. And I suppose no matter how much understanding I have of that process, you can't say you're not disappointed that something that you've invested time, energy, oh. love and care into you're not really going to get the rewards going forward. Um, and that's not just financial, those are personal relationships mm. as well. So it, from, from that side, it was disappointing. And I suppose a lot of the decisions that I make around now with my fellow directors are around avoiding that fear, that, sorry, that feelings, those feelings that I had at that time are not then replicated by the people that work with us. So you started uh, bread bricks with Julie, a colleague of yours? Yeah, so Julie and I had worked together. She was actually my first ever boss at Blundell's, which is nice. So she ran the Chesterfield sales office. And that was the office that I moved into when, when I first well, had uh, the lettings valuing job. And Jules has always been amazing. Uh, she uh, has, we, we had a saying when we started Red Brick that I would bring the business in, but she would be very much the person that kept it. So she's uh, got a great way with people. She really cares and she both cares about the clients and also the, the staff that we work with. She, she's still in the business or? Uh, to a certain degree she is. She's uh, one of our trustees of our foundation. Unfortunately, Julie uh, had a number of different health issues um, sort of uh, over the last recent years and has taken a more backseat and then retired uh, in 2020. Okay, that's, so 
you started a you started an estate agency. Interesting that there's two of you started it. Yep. I've seen quite a lot of that recently, where two people have started an agency, where they they both have opposite, you know, quite different skills. You know, at this point, you'd never managed an office. Mm -hmm. The only thing you'd manage is probably yourself. Correct. So, do you think that was a wise thing to do to start a business with somebody else? Because starting a business with somebody else is, yeah. again, you hear the other side of the coin where. People, you know, they fall. I mean, I, I've been talking to 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 one recently, and they're falling out only after being in business a month. Um, what, what? What? How did you? How do you? Let's be honest. There are advantages of two people going in business together, especially if you've got opposites skills. But how how did you sort that out moving forward in terms of disagreements and who does what and things like that? Well, I think there's a very famous saying that start with the end in mind. And I think Julie and I's first ever meeting around um, what we were looking to do was very, very open. Um, Julie uh, is 15 years older than I am. Um, and so it was very much aware from day one that she would look to exit the business before, before I did. So I think we've always been very honest and frank about everything. And I think honesty is the best policy when it comes to any level of partnership. And um, we we had a, we we have I don't think we had we have a fantastic relationship even now, and um, I think I can probably think of one disagreement that we've had in the entire time, and and that's it. But for me, um, I understand the benefits of uh, single ownership business. Um, that's not the way that I feel it works best, especially when you're trying to grow something. I think you need to. Okay understand that not, you don't have you're not good enough at everything to, to be able to do it 2014 you opened up the second branch now the amount of people have said to me that opening up the second branch was the worst thing they ever did <laughs> how did how did that work or did you split did you did you and Julie split split yourselves so one was in one one was the other no whenever we've whenever we've tried to open a, a branch we've always we've never tried to dilute our current offering and i think that's the mistake that most people make whether it be a coffee shop whether it be a cake shop whether it be an estate agent whether it be a restaurant if you try and split yourself too thin i think that's where in, inevitably you get a lesser quality of service so what we have always tried to do, and also understanding that different markets require different personalities and different approaches. So when we opened in southwest of Sheffield, um, our Millhouse's office, which we still have to this day, although it's uh, now our client services team and our asset management team, um, we, we, we brought in specific people. We added to the directorship at that point as well. Um, but did you, you know, when you opened up that second office, did you bring in a, a brand new branch manager or did you promote from within? Um, we had somebody that had been within the business uh, for a number of months that we knew from Blundell's. So we knew his character and, and who he was and how he was going to do something. So we brought him into the Chesterfield office for about five months beforehand with the understanding that we were going to open in the southwest of Sheffield. And added to that uh, came another director, um, again, somebody that we'd worked with at Blundell's that we knew and they'd spent a little bit of time. So in it's London. not as if they were, it was just a hire, because the amount no. of times I've seen people open up a second branch and just, just go to one of the recruitment agents and parachute someone in. And the ethos and the culture doesn't 
transfer across. No, and I don't see how anyone could ever expect it to. So whenever we've tried to open a new entity, a new department, it has always been people that we have either known within the business or externally, uh, but known them very, very well for a number of years and, and often have a personal relationship with. So in 15 and 16, you started opening up other branches, Crystal Peaks, and you opened up a new homes department in 2016. Talk to me about bringing in new fresh blood, especially equity partners, because you're diluting your, your share and obviously Julie is as well. Yeah, and, and I think at any point I'd rather have, um, I would rather have a, a sort of a smaller portion if it meant more, if it was actually more valuable. Okay. And that's the You'd way. rather have a bigger 80%, I'm just picking figures here, a bigger 80% of something bigger than a, hundred, a smaller of something 100%. Correct. And that's the way that okay. I've always looked at it. That doesn't seem like most estate agents though. Um, again... Where does that come from? Mum or dad? Um, I suppose, I mean, if I look at my dad's uh, partnership that he had with his uh, with his partner Alison Herndl, who started HRM with my dad, that was again a really good yin yang in terms of the way that they worked together. Um, but I also think about Blundell's as well, and there were lots of different skill sets within the partnership there. So I suppose my experiences in life, where I've seen successful businesses, it's been different types of characters at the top of the business. Because if you don't mind me saying, you're not a normal estate agent. Um, I don't know if that's a compliment or not, Christopher. But, a, um, um, most, estate, most estate agents tend to be people, people outward going, wants everyone to love them, wants instant results, not very good at looking the big picture. You seem to be a lot more bigger picture in your outlook. You know, the fact that you came from, had a degree in PR and you understand the power of PR and marketing as opposed to advertising, the power of the brand. You know, you are a significant player in both markets, aren't you? Um, we're trying to be, yeah. And I think we're not there yet. And I think there's a long way for us to go. But I think, um, I think that there's a lot about traditional estate agency that many people will see as positives. But I think there's an awful lot about traditional estate agents that many people will see as negatives. And I suppose some of the influences on the negative side have a have a role to play in that as well. I think there's everybody can think about the one estate agent that they despise or they really oh. don't like because it's all about me, 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 me. And actually, I don't feel that is great for the local community, great for the industry, great for the client. So I think it's as well about having positive role models and negative role models to play off against as well. So how many directors are now in the business? So there's three current directors, including myself um, and um, myself, Peter Lee uh, and David Cooper. Um, really uh, fantastic people. Uh, again, all three of us have very different skill sets and are very different types of people. Peter's the accountant and, and likes to look at costs all the time and, and often... Do you, do you like that in the fact is that you don't have to worry about? Um, I think what I love about our uh, directorship at the moment is that we have, um, while we're often in tune with the bigger picture, we challenge each other in okay. a very nice way. So David's king of the stats, king so, of the numbers. Now, David, David's, David's a very personal guy. He's got um, an awful lot of respect from within the staff. He, okay. he really thinks about the team, um, very process-driven, great with understanding the sales system and and managing that side of it. Peter is phenomenal on lettings and new homes. I, I, I would say he's unrivaled, but um, yeah, he's really superb on that side of it. 
that has an accountancy background, which obviously keeps my spending habits in check. Because you being a, you, you being a fluffy PR marketing person, you could you, you can end up wasting lots of money on stuff. I don't try you? not to, yeah, and I, yeah. I I am relatively reasoned, but I am I do like to create. I do like the next thing. Is that I, what excites you? Very much so. Yeah, I think. Um, Creating opportunities, creating ideas, yeah. looking at the next thing. You, so you're a bit of a you like coming up, you like creating and building. But a lot of those people then get bored when they when they build it. How do you keep your interest going? Um, I think there's um, I don't know whether it's just getting that little bit older in terms of understanding that um, we need to okay. always get to maturity. Uh, and I think okay. we've got. But then you went and bought your dad's. PR agency, wasn't that a distraction? Um, again, I think if you've got the right people to run it and, and not dilute the service offer, I don't think we would have done that if it had still just been Julie and I and two other people. I think at this stage, our businesses... Okay. Did you buy it because you were bored? Uh, no, no. Um, what happened was... Because you went and went and opened two restaurants this year. We did go and open two that restaurants. Must, that screams of you being bored. It, it could do if you looked at it like that, but there is always a strategic plan, we think, behind most of our decisions. Go and, on. Um, so uh, I think, first of all, uh, and we are jumping around a lot, but great advocates of the high street. So if... Well, if, that's the purpose of these chats, is that we're just having a chat and we go where it goes. I know. And um, if, if you're a great advocate of the high street, and we started to look about 18 months ago, Two years ago, where should our footprint be? Should we still okay. be in high street offices? Should we consolidate? Because you're on, you're, you do check it out on Google. Um, it's on the corner of Eccleshall Road and Greystones Road. Yeah, so it's on Eccleshall Road opposite sort of Greystones Road. Yeah, yeah. check it out. Um, it looks like a, a, a ship, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing building that was built in 2008. Formerly, this is um, this was our second one, actually. This is um, on Eccleshall Road. So... We wanted a real figurehead office for our Southwest Sheffield operations. And um, pre previously that had been out of Millhouses, which is a little suburb in Sheffield, a lovely place. I actually grew up in Millhouses, uh, right next to the park. It's fantastic. Uh, and the office is very traditional, um, but we wanted something that would okay. really say, wow, we're here. Good stuff. We'll get jo Jody, put, get a screenshot of Google play, um, Google Street View and drop it in now. Okay. It looks absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it, it is a beautiful Jody, Jody sort us out. Keep that in, Jody. Fantastic. Thank you, okay. Jody. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic building and we wanted something that was very prominent. And it was a former Bistro Pierre. Uh, and when they went... Oh, I like that. Yeah, so when they went into administration, um, it was a building that I, I was aware that that business was struggling a little bit and we tried to get in contact with them to see if we could take the building on. Um, and it wasn't sort of working. And then post, post pandemic lockdown, uh, as things started to open up, we were able to, to start speaking to the landlords and, and it, it transpired that unfortunately, they weren't going to reopen that restaurant uh, and they were going to renege on the lease. So at that point, uh, there are a number of, other, number of other interested parties, if I can get my words out, and we were able to secure the deal. But part of that um, was we had to keep the kitchen. The landlord was slightly worried about having a full change of use. Um, and at the time, we had just opened in Northwest in uh, Stocksbridge, Fox Valley, uh, a fantastic um, sort of open air shopping centre, really, which is a wonderful place if you've not been um, and got lots of vibrancy, lots of things going on. And we were looking to uh, open in the northwest for some time. And a unit came up in Fox Valley, which is very, very rare, which was a former restaurant. So very, very similar MOs in terms of both of these buildings. 
both had kitchens already in place, both had the, the facilities in there. So we didn't quite have the same capex to spend as if we were going into a blank, blank building, which was nice. And we sort of sat down and we said, is this something that we want to do? And there were a number of reasons that we really wanted to do it. One, we wanted to engage within our community and actually... So is there a link? Okay, so you have, you have a coffee shop in the Fox Valley. Is there an yeah. estate agency in the same building? Yes, so upstairs, yeah. So is there an interaction between the two? Absolutely. Would you actually know? Does it look like an estate agent has a coffee shop then? Um, so what you you go in and the outside there's a little courtyard area. There's um, and you outside tables. You go in and there's the counter and it's very much like a coffee shop. But there's an open staircase up to the estate agency with a door that's open and closed. Obviously, for privacy. does the sign at the front say estate agency? It's got Rafina on one side, which is the brand that we have, and Redbrick on the other, and it's a single door. And when vendors come in, I'm assuming that you meet them and have a cup of coffee. That's one of the advantages, yes. So clients really do like that. And um, I think, again, if you look at any of these sort of American-style TV property shows, you see uh, great face-to-face -face meetings, great dealings that happen. Okay. And having that environment to do that is and, phenomenal. And on the Eckersall Road, is that the same or is that more of a standalone restaurant? Uh, no, it's, it's actually probably more connected in Eckersall Road, bizarrely. Um, Eckersall Road is quite a unique building. And without going into the interests, you've got a car park at the back, which is next to a co-op and a dry cleaners. And you can enter Redbrick or Rafina from the, the back door, although it's quite a nice big entrance. Um, and then go downstairs into Rafina or sort of turn left and go upstairs into Redbrick. It's a split level building because Sheffield's on the hills, so mm. it's, it's on quite a steep incline. Uh, and so upstairs we've got the Redbrick office and then downstairs we've got Rafina, which is sort of an all day cafe. Um, and does it work well? I mean, you know, that's a bit of a Foxton's thing and I've seen a few estates work that well. <clears throat> do, you, do you see that as a way forward potentially for all your offices, depending on the buildings or future leases? I would certainly suggest that would be something we would look at if we were to open anywhere else we would want to do that because the engagement that you get with it, they are standalone businesses i mean let's be it's not a virgin money or a, a foxton's environment you are going to a separate it brand. has to wipe its own face correct but at the same time the interaction and the synergy of the two help both absolutely and i think it was something that there's there's, a, there's lots of different reasons why we did it, but sort of very early on when we had Redbrick in Chesterfield and I was out there as the principal valuer, I never had an office for four years and I really tried to make sure that I would be in coffee shops okay. for my breakfast, my lunch, because you're seeing clients in the community. Not many people choose to go and speak to their estate agent on a day-to-day -day basis, yet if they are, you are there... You are engaging with them naturally, and I think you create much more. Has that come from your PR marketing background? Do you think? Um, I don't know whether it came out of necessity that we just outgrew the offices, and it was something that mm -hmm. had to happen. I think there was some conscious thought very early on when I realised how powerful it was that you're speaking to people all the time. Um, whether it came from a PR marketing degree, I don't really think it did. I think it was much more to do with understanding what was working for us at the time. Okay, so. How did you get through COVID? Um, COVID, I think, was probably my single biggest challenge initially. Uh, I got COVID, well, I presume I got COVID. There were no tests for it then. Um, in very, very early on, and, and anyone that's had COVID, which I'm sure is the vast majority now, will, will testify to not being a nice experience for a lot of people. And certainly, sort of 48, 72 hours, I was quite poorly. And then after that, there's this realisation that everything is getting locked down. And, and I think that I felt certainly we'd spent a number of years building this business up, 
And I think the timing that it happened for a lot of estate agents was particularly cruel as well, obviously coming off the back of a first quarter when traditionally you don't get a lot of income no. in. And so you've got this huge pipeline. The worst case scenarios tend to go through your head. I'm very good at writing myself stories and, and trying to project into the future. And a lot of those were worst case scenarios. And I think, again, with COVID, um, it's the first time that I'm a very positive person. I always look for the, right, how can I change that for the better? I think it was the first time that I was actually negative. How did you get through that? Um, I think a lot of credit goes to the people around me. So that's Laura, my wife, that's the other directors. And just a sheer determination to... But they would have been going through their own demons as well, wouldn't they? Yeah, but I think, again, that's one of the benefits of, of having a collaborative process and, and trusting in each other. And I, th I don't think... Redbrick is not about Mark Ross, it is about a collaborative. It was very much 50-50 with myself and Julie at the very beginning and then as other directors have come in, we've always been very inclusive. It's not been about one person or the other. It's always, even now with our management team, it's very rare that as a directorship we will make a decision that hasn't been run by them or hasn't included them in terms of that decision-making process. You're 41 years old, you know, you could either decide to smash it out the park and retire at 50 or sell up to, but you said you're not going to sell up. What is the future for Mark Ross and Redbricks? I think initially at the moment, we're very much focused on, um, we've, we've been through quite a big growth period over the last sort of eight, nine years. And I think I'm quite excited to get all of the different departments, businesses um, to a really strong position. I think We've got some amazing departments that are okay. really at maturity, others that are still fledgling. So I think there's an opportunity uh, to still be innovative, to create new things within the existing framework that we have. I'm really excited about asset management and the idea about how we can really help and build different departments within our asset management team, which is very exciting for me. And then I think once we've got those businesses a little bit more elevated and brought up to where we really think they can reach their potential. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by lots of different types of industries that are associated with property. Do you think you ever will retire? Um, never say never, but I think it's highly unlikely. I think it's highly unlikely. And if, if you could press record, if you could press pause and go back and change anything, would you change anything? Um, I think it'd be very dangerous to do so because I think out of everything that you've done wrong, you learn an awful lot. And so those experiences make you who you are today. So um, yes, there are lots of things that I perhaps am frustrated with the decisions that I might have made at that particular point, but not to the extent where I'd like to rewrite history from a work point of view at all because it's about learning from the mistakes. And I think that there is a culture in the UK that is not necessarily that helpful that if something is wrong, therefore you stop doing it. I think you just learn, adapt and change it. If the belief was there that it work, should work, it probably will. Mark, thank you for your time today. Um, in a series of other smaller videos, which we can do separately, which will be on my YouTube channel, I'd like to talk about Property Academy that I know you're a big fan of. Absolutely. Pr promoting staff from w within your firm, uh, qualifications and regulation, collaboration amongst the state agents and the 19th century archaic way of, of, of conveyancing versus the way we sell houses in the 21st century. So um, they'll all be on my YouTube channel, so check them out. Mark, thank you for your time today. I hope you have enjoyed it out there in estate and letting agency land. Um, 
Thank you very much. No, thank you.